You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT-LP, Davis, California. And that music means it's time for the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore. And this is Lois Richter on a bright, beautiful, sunny summer day. Don, 104, 74. What's yeah, that's, that's about our week range here for the projected and past weather. It is June 29th, 2022, as we record this last show for the month of June this year. It'll broadcast on June 30th. And the temperature today is going to go up to a high of 91 degrees. It is only 79 right now with a cool temperature tonight of 53 we're going into a protracted cooling spell here in the Sacramento Valley and really along the coast of California. Our high temperatures for the next five days shall be 86, 85, 81, 77, 82, and then back up to 84 on Tuesday with night temperatures in the low 50s, 53 to 56 degrees throughout that period big cool trough you can see it on the radar imagery or the satellite imagery if you go online uh it's parked off it's over the entire western united states causing significantly cooler temperatures than we had been experiencing over the last week sacramento hit 100 degrees six days in a row up until i think yesterday or the day before uh that was not a record a record would be nine days over 100 degrees in a row but it was pretty hot and sacramento gets a little hotter than davis and dixon and the environs here on the other side of the causeway we were mostly 98 99 100 but we did have 104 and 102 on a couple days over the last week that's a really important data point because of some of the problems we've been seeing at our garden center on plants in the last few days. We're going in totally the other direction now. Much cooler, very comfortable weather, uh, sunny and very breezy, very, very strong delta or coastal influence going to be affecting much of the valley, uh, especially Davis, Dixon region where the delta breeze is coming in at 6, 630 in the evening. It cools off very rapidly. Even if it was warm during the day, you can open your windows and cool off your house. Very, very pleasant weather for the next week. And the extended forecast, let me go out and see how far out they think this is going to go. Extended discussion Sunday through Wednesday, the clusters, as they say, which is the ensembles of the models are in good agreement that a trough will continue to impact interior northern california this weekend into early next week coolest today is expected on sunday uh, but there will be very cool high temperatures across the area very breezy in the delta highs will generally be about 5 to 15 degrees below normal for early july this day the fourth of july is going to be about 80 degrees here in the Sacramento Valley. And the system also brings a chance for some light showers on Sunday and Monday, mainly for the mountains of Shasta County. Dry weather and a slight warming are expected by mid next week. Slight warming, not a major heat wave coming back in, bouncing back in the other direction. Need to talk a little bit more, though, about the impact of all those hot days that we were having. When it was 99, 100 degrees day after day, five or six days in a row, I like to go over to that those CIMIS websites, C-I-M-I-S, and look at the weather stations and see what the ET rate has been running compared to average. Our average ET rate 
has here is generally about a quarter of an inch a day, about 0.25, 0.26 inch per day. For five days straight, it was 0.3 to 0.31. And one day it was 0.33, a third of an inch of water use, evapotranspiration rate on that particular day. So if you do the math, that's anywhere from 10 to 20% above average, right? And how much is that per week? Because I'm not really good with, you know, fiddly little bits. Yeah, so typically we're we're not quite two inches per week, right? We're about 1.9 up to two inches in an average week here. This is the the measured ET rate for a patch of grass. I mean, this is not what every plant is using, but it's our it's our data base for comparing plant water use. Whereas if you bump it up 10 to 20%, you're looking at about 2.1 inches. So if you were just barely giving them enough water, with your drip system. If you had figured it all out and we're giving them just barely that quarter inch a day they need, then we have six or seven days in which it's higher than that. Plants will show some water deficit, some stress. And we've had sample after sample brought in. These were folks who in many cases were not giving it anywhere near what it needed. They were giving it significantly less. And we've talked a lot about this, the slide rule, the Wukol's data, all that stuff going back months and months about how we can water less during a drought. When it really comes into play in terms of affecting certain plants is when we have several days, as we just did, above average. In terms of not just temperature, that's a good indicator that we're likely to be above average, but also wind, which definitely puts us above average. And a plant that's on the edge of stress will be stressed because it's using, trying to use more water and you aren't typically providing it. I don't expect everybody to go out there and adjust their sprinkler timer on a weekly basis based on the current ET rates. You can buy sprinkler timers that do that. You can buy smart timers that go right to that weather station and figure out exactly how to adjust your program. Or you can find, buy timers where you can go and go up at 10%, reduce to 10%. If you bumped it up 10% last week, you could drop it down 10% this coming week because ET rate this week will be substantially lower, will be a lot cooler. So we did see a lot of stress. A lot of it was just cosmetic stuff, which we expect. If we've got people implementing drought restrictions and you're watering less than plants want, we have a period of higher temperature, higher wind, lower humidity, certain plants, and we can predict which ones they're gonna be, are gonna show some stress. And for the most part, I was happily telling people, this is just cosmetic, the leaf tips on your Japanese maple are all going to burn. Lady brought in her clematis vine. You know, the overall looks fine. You get close, you realize all the leaf tips were, were, were dry looking, dried out. The edges of the leaves, she was concerned it might be a disease. No, that was simply a plant that is not really accustomed to this kind of dry, hot climate in the first place getting not quite enough water during a heat wave. And again, it's cosmetic. It's not gonna be threatening the life of the plant, but it does tell you that you've got that plant on the edge of what it needs or actually a little less than what it needs. So if one went and increased their watering 10% mm-hmm. um, and and their, their plants survived, thank goodness. Mm-hmm. Now, would it hurt anything to just leave it there? Because we're gonna get heat waves periodically during the summer and i don't know i would i'm not sure i would even predict when that was going to be and so would it hurt anything 10 percent isn't going to make much of a difference and if there's extra water it's going to be stored in our soil isn't it sure but we're in a drought and we have drought restrictions and the entire state is in a drought and under drought restrictions so people are being asked to water as little as possible with the maintaining the health of the plants so if you are trying to do your part 
and water as little as you can, but still keep the plants healthy, then it's best to adjust with the weather patterns. I actually don't have a timer on the many, many, many valves on my property. I just go out there and if a heat wave is coming in, I water deeper and we're going into cooler spells. I water a little less often. So I actually adjust my watering with the weather. I don't expect most people to do that. If they don't do anything, you'll get some scorched leaves. We can predict which plants it'll be. Someone asked me you know, how, how can I know which of the plants in my, my uh, landscape are going to be affected by cutting way back, like you're talking about the slide rule and all that kind of thing? Which of the plants you've mentioned are the ones that, that are going to be harder to keep healthy that way? Well, if you want a technical source of information, you can go way back to the shows we did several months back, the water use coefficient of landscape species information that's available online. And you can look up the plants in your yard if you happen to know what they are. I can give some pointers on that. And the ones that are at, say, we should water at 70 to 80% ET, which would be a high end of things, and you're only watering at 50%, hey, I can predict those will be the plants that will show some stress. Hydrangeas, Japanese maples, some most ferns, uh, you know, there's a lot of plants that would be more likely to be affected. It's pretty easy to predict just knowing where they're from. If this is an East Coast woodsy kind of plant, and you're in the West Coast and ain't woodsy, it's probably going to burn here when we have higher temperatures and you're, and you're watering it less than that plant would absolutely prefer. The point of the slide rule and the point of the water use coefficient conversations we've had is to try to give plants enough to keep them healthy or enough to at least keep them okay, which is where the slide rule comes in, even though we know that it's going to be hot in periods and cooler in periods and windy in periods and so forth, on average, on average, if you stuck with what we've talked about, they'll be okay. Worst that'll happen is an, a broadleaf evergreen that gets a little underwater, the leaves might scorch if they're in full sun. Some of the leaves, that's a sign that plant would benefit from some more water. Maybe you need to bump it up a little bit. I really do want to emphasize this. The last part of every article I write on this is your plant's performance is your best indicator as to whether you've got this figured out. Your plant performance is telling you whether they're getting enough water at least to get through this summer or to keep the flowers going or keep fruiting or whatever it is you want from that particular plant. It may not be optimal, but it's acceptable. So if your hydrangea is looking a little scorched or your Japanese maples are looking a little burnt on the tips or margins, that's okay. This, the plant's health is not compromised, but it tells you that maybe either hand water those a little bit or bump up the system 5%, 10%, whatever works for you. I know a lot of people don't want to have to think about their timers. So for those folks, a timer that allows you to bump it up, bump it down a little bit might be the best way to go. Just being aware that we're in a drought, we're asking you all to cut back and some plants may not perform as well as they would under more optimal watering conditions, as long as you can accept that. I had a customer who brought in some rose leaves. You know, her roses looked a little scorched. I said, you know what? I long ago got used to the idea that my hundred plus roses weren't going to look great in July. That's just the way it goes. They, they really want to be in, think about the cities that are famous for their rose gardens, Portland, Oregon, uh, you know, places like that. Now, I, I don't envy them their fungus problems in those climates, but roses would like it to be 85 degrees all the time and have nice, even soil moisture all the time. Well, we can't really provide that here. So when we have extreme heat or a little bit of drought stress on the roses, the leaves, will, uh, many varieties will burn, some varieties more than others. The flowers won't open as perfectly. The petals will scorch a little bit. 
that's okay. The plant's health is not compromised. And I'm very happy about how they look in the fall. When I give them a nice soaking as we get into that fall weather, that's one of the best blossoms that we get, the best bloom periods we get on the roses. Don't worry too much about a little bit of leaf scorch, but don't hesitate to take pictures, bring samples in to folks like us, master gardeners, send them to us. And we can tell you whether this is just a little bit of seasonal burn because you've done your part and cut back your watering or something of, to be more concerned about. So if I had a tree, and this is hypothetical, I really don't. What if I had a tree and, and uh, the edges were getting a little crispy and, and I said, okay, well, that plant needs a little more water. Mm -hmm. And so I, I went out there, watered that Japanese maple a little bit more mm -hmm. so that it wouldn't be stressed. Now, are those crinkly edges on the leaf and those burnt tips, are they actually going to revert to nice, healthy leaves or they're no. just no. they're going to stay there, aren't they? They're burnt. They're burnt. That's it for the season. If they still have time to put on some new growth, it can cover over that, those kind of scorched leaves. But no, they, uh, the damage is done, but it's also not life threatening to the plant. But also, you mentioned mentioned trees, and that's a good example. The slide rule I'm talking about, you know, where I'm having you put one inch of water on your woody plants a week or that is not enough for a big tree. But we do know that big, well-established shade trees city street trees, most species that have been chosen appropriately are okay with that. They won't grow quite as much that year. They won't be quite as robust, but they will be okay. Many species do need some extra attention. And this concerns us at Tree Davis, City of Davis, others who are trying to promote healthy, vigorous trees for the city's urban tree canopy. If you could give them a deeper soaking once a month, you know, a slow trickle with a hose moved around or like that three ring watering contraption we discussed last week, um, a good deep soaking once a month for established trees or especially younger shade trees that are maybe in the eight to 10 year stage, just really getting going and haven't got their roots down deep enough to be extracting soil moisture as well as their bigger uh, counterparts it would be good for them. So this goes beyond that slide rule. It goes beyond the water use coefficient. It means just a once a month, really deep, slow trickle for the larger trees on your property. They definitely would benefit from them, especially ones that maybe we shouldn't be using so much anymore, but they're still out there. Birches, maples, coast redwoods, especially uh, magnolias. Someone sent me a picture of her magnolia, Solangiana. The leaves were looking burnt on the west side, what a surprise. Um, you know, this is, we expect that. Uh, they really need a little extra water. So if you wanna keep those trees healthy, let's not take out 40,000 coast redwoods because they aren't suitable for the valley. They're here, they're well-established trees, they're healthy. Let's give them some extra water and keep them going. But a once a month deep soaking would be sufficient for most of those types of trees. Well, let's, um, oh, don't we have some announcements? I think we Great. should do announcements. Well, the Bohart Museum is back in business over there. Bohart Museum of Entomology at UC Davis. And I, I really wish I had noticed this one before June 28th because they had a casual night with arachnids. You know? Oh, that's okay. I, I didn't <laughs> miss it, actually. Get to know some spiders you know, you know, on a friendlier basis. Um, they have programs back at the uh, Bohart Museum. And you can, I don't see anything for July at the moment, but it's Bohart. B-O-H-A-R-T dot U-C Davis 
www.edu. They are open some weekdays for visiting the museum and looking at the incredible collections there. That's been changing, but the hours are expanding. So just go to the Bohart Museum of Entomology webpage. Not only will you find news and cool pictures and all kinds of articles and great resources there, especially if you've got kids that are doing school projects, whatever. Uh, the Bohart Museum of Entomology is a phenomenal resource for, as they put it, understanding documenting and communicating terrestrial arthropod diversity bohart.ucdavis.edu don't don't they also over in that same building have another place that is it's not just bugs it's a because i know i went in some place years ago when i wanted to figure out how many feathers were on a hummingbird's tail so i could make my picture look better wait, wait back up here you wanted to find out what <laughs> how many feathers are on a hummingbird's tail and also which direction the wing feathers went so that i could make my artwork look more realistic what's so i went in and don't, don't and, singing. what's the answer <laughs> i painted a picture it's okay but but is that another museum or is that part of bohart it's got to be someone else. Avian Sciences would be my best guess. And I believe yeah. Avian Sciences is right near the Bohart Museum of Entomology. Well, anyway, I have question, an though. accurate hummingbird picture now, thanks to the UC Davis Museum. Right. Avian science is the most likely. Anyway, Bohart is a great resource. Also, there's lots of great programming here at KDRT, and I'm going to throw out one music show. If you like jazz, I have a jazz show. That's really cool. I know a lot of you are aware of Jazz After Dark, which runs on Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. And then after me is Gary Chu's show, which is called Third Streaming. What? Third Stream is the synthesis of classical and jazz term was invented by Gunter Schuller, a composer and a performer from the 1950s who worked with Dave Brubeck and some of the others. Gary has a phenomenal show. It's extremely eclectic. It's a great niche within the whole range of jazz. So if you enjoy Jazz After Dark and you happen to just be a podcast listener, you may not know there's another really cool two-hour jazz show at KDRT called Third Streaming with Gary Chu. Check it out. Tuesdays, rebroadcast, and a couple times during the week. So just go to kdrt.org and check the schedule guide. 9 p.m. for two hours? Yeah. When, when does the man ever sleep? I believe that's a rebroadcast, but you can listen to jazz <laughs> on Cater from 8 to 11 p.m. on Tuesdays. So All it's right. jazz evening over there. Okay. All right. Well, let's talk about um, some weather-related things. Yeah. What's this here I hear about late blight on tomatoes? Yeah, remember how hot it was? Well, remember the week before that when we had some weird muggy weather and even a little bit of drizzle and some sprinkles here and there around the area and people were commenting about how it was raining in June and how weird that was? Well, unfortunately, as we like to say, this week's weather is next week's problems. And after that spate of a couple days of monsoon influence, I guess is what was technically happening, some folks sent me pictures of late blight on tomatoes, or they sent me pictures and wanted to know what was happening to their tomatoes. It's very frustrating when it happens. People who are listening back east, anywhere where it actually rains in the summer, know how devastating this disease can be where you have continued summer rainfall. Phytophthora, well, you've heard that phrase a lot on the Davis Garden Show. Well, this is probably the most famous one, Phytophthora infestans, which is the disease that caused many people from Ireland, Norway, and Sweden, and other parts of the uh, Europe to migrate to the United States when their potatoes rotted in the 19th century. 
various forms of Phytophthora infestans are out there and late blight is one of them. It uh, blows, I hate to say, um, splashes and blows in from one point on the plant to another. You can almost always see the point of infection where it's hit. On one side of the plant, there'll be sudden lesions and dead areas on the leaf, on the petiole. That's good news if that's the only place it is. On the stem of that branch, that's not such great news. And worst of all is when it hits on the main stem of the plant, of the, the tomato vine that you're growing, then you've got a problem because it causes very rapid dieback, very rapid death of everything past the point of infection. Um, here, we're in, we're in luck. You just see it. You see some dead parts occurring. You can see the spots of infection. You take your pruners, you prune that all out completely. You put it in a plastic bag. It goes into the trash, not the compost pile. I guess it's probably a good plan to clean your, your pruners at that point with hydrogen peroxide or a light bleach solution is probably better. Uh, I've even read about people using Lysol. I, I won't get into that debate, but the point being, it can spread very rapidly. However, Remember how it was real muggy there and we had that drizzly thing for a day or two? Well, then the next week it was 100 degrees and 5% humidity. Problem yeah. solved. But it's not completely solved if you haven't pruned it out because at that point you might overhead water, you might be washing the leaves off to get rid of white flies like we tell you to do, and you might be splashing it from one part of the plant to another part of the plant. One big advantage of wide spacing of your tomato plants is if you happen to get late blight on a plant, it happens. Sometimes it comes in on a nursery plant. Sometimes it carried over from previous year in your garden. If you've got your plants spaced three, four feet apart, you really can't get from one to the other. It doesn't go that far that fast. We don't get summer rainstorms that drive water splashing in squalls. If we get a summer rainstorm, it's, oh, I felt a few droplets. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> it's, it's raining in the Sacramento Valley in June. That's what we get in the way of summer rainfall. You look at our average rainfall totals in June, July, August, September, pretty close to zero. So even one rainstorm typically doesn't make much difference. But if you're listening in a rainy summer climate, you know that this, or well, we'll learn unfortunately the hard way that this is a huge problem when you have a bad year for late blight, when you have retailers that are inadvertently selling plants that are infected, when you buy a plant from or get a plant from your friend down the street who grew too many seedlings, they happen to be infected. And there have been years, 2015 was notable, one very large retailer was inadvertently selling late blight infected plants all over the Atlantic seaboard and the upper Midwest, and people would plant them, they'd have a rainstorm and all the tomato plants in their row would be hit with this disease and killed. I mean, killed rapidly back because storm after storm continues to spread it. In that situation, you probably should go talk to your local garden center, hardware store, or even better, perhaps the cooperative extension folks at your local land grant university and ask them about what kind of fungicide is safe and effective to use as a curative and as a preventative. And more than likely, they'll talk to you about getting two products and rotating them. We don't have to do this here. We're in a dry climate. The problem hits, we prune it out, 5% humidity takes care of the problem. But if you are listening where that's an issue, it is standard, I'm told, never done this myself, but it is standard those places to spray your tomato plants several times during the summer to prevent late blight from killing them. Good news is that there are apparently now late blight resistant varieties of tomatoes. And so you can go to some of the better known companies like Johnny's Selected Seeds, Burpee Seed Company, Harris Seed, and they now have tomato varieties that are not just resistant to 
verticillium, fusarium, nematodes, those things that we deal with here, but also resistant to late blight. If you're in a region where that's a problem, I suggest you explore some of those. Casual conversation with a geneticist, he didn't really understand how they could be claiming late blight resistance, so I'll just say your results may vary, but it's worth looking into. And there's a bunch of names at Johnny's Selected Seeds. You go to their phenomenal website. They have several varieties listed that are apparently quite resistant, at least against some of the strains of late blight that are out there. That's one of the issues is that these diseases can mutate faster than we can breed, <laughs> breed tomato varieties. Uh, we encounter this with fusarium wilt out in our area where we're now up to like our third strain of it. They're talking about several strains back there. So you really have to do a little more research on this, but be aware that you may have to in a bad year do some spraying. Here, prune it out, get it identified. You know, this is something where just, I don't, I don't really understand this. Posting it on a random Facebook group and asking people what the problem is gives you some of the weirdest answers I've ever seen. <laughs> you really should talk to someone who knows what they're talking about when it comes to plant diseases, because the next step is people jumping in with a whole bunch of home remedies, and that just makes things worse. So get it properly identified. If you're in a region where it's a problem, find the appropriate remedy in our area. Thank goodness that's just a matter of pruning it out. So we talked a little bit about slide and the rule is 50% of the ET rate. Do mm -hmm. we need to go over that more today? Or we've was, talked about it in the past. Is yeah, that enough? We have. I was asked to clarify one part, which was the, how do you actually do this? So, all right, this, there's typically four ways that people are watering, three ways that people are watering. A sprinkler on a hose, one of my favorites, you go buy a cheap sprinkler at the hardware store, you put it on a hose, you turn on your valve at some volume and it covers some area. That's the problem with those. They, I use them a lot on my property. They're little spot sprinklers, cover like a 10 by 10 area. You can put out an inch of water because our 50% ET rate is about one inch of water in a week. So that's what I'm saying. Do that all at once in one week. Put a little spot sprinkler on a hose set under my linden tree. If I run that for... 15 or 20 minutes, I've given it an inch of water, okay? On the other hand, if I put an oscillating sprinkler, I don't know if you know the term wave sprinkler, the kind kids like to run through because they move back and forth, not, not an impulse, not a rainbird type, but the oscillating sprinklers, you're covering four or five times that area and the output from your hose is the same. That doesn't change unless you have adjusted it. So you're covering a much larger area with the same output, which means it may take at least a couple of hours. So with a sprinkler, at some point, this can be a fun project, a great science fair project. I, I want to do a whole show sometime on garden-related <laughs> science fair projects, but this is a really simple one. What's the output of different sprinklers? Because I'm telling you all to water one inch of water a week bare minimum for woody plants. You know, you can do two inches in every two weeks if you prefer to go longer intervals. But the idea here in the valley is one inch of water a week. Well, gosh, how long does it take with a little sprinkler on a hose or a big sprinkler on a hose or at a rainbird type, those impulse types that cover a very big area? It's going to take a lot longer if you're covering a big area because again, the hose only puts out so much water no matter what's on the end of it. So it may take a couple of hours with a wave sprinkler. This was the point I was discussing with the customer who was asking for clarification. With a sprinkler system, hopefully it's designed correctly. And you have sprinkler heads at certain intervals. I'm talking about the kinds that pop up and water your lawn or water your shrubs. Some people use these to water shrub and planter, you know, uh, uh, perennial border areas. They're the same kind that are in the lawn. They just spray out a certain amount. If you happen to have the brand and model, you know what the output is and you can get the square footage and do a bunch of math, but you can also just measure. And my 
experience is that those kind in your lawn take about 20 to 30 minutes to put out an inch of water. Just a rough rule, please measure for yourself with us a good starting point. But if you or your gardener or your landscaper has replaced those heads with newer, more water efficient sprinklers that put it out more slowly and thus more efficiently, you do have to run it a lot longer to get an inch of water. So it may be 40 minutes, 45 minutes with a more modern sprinkler head on your sprinkler system. This is something that you can measure. But again, I also suggest get a bunch of tuna cans, cat food cans, store them. This is very important for this project. Set them in different areas, especially areas where the plants don't look so good. Maybe they're not getting enough water because the sprinklers aren't covering very well. I mean, sprinklers are supposed to overlap. I've designed sprinkler systems. They're supposed to overlap a certain amount. You're supposed to have reasonable distribution throughout the whole zone, the same application rate throughout the whole zone. But you can't always do that. Lawns and yards aren't shaped perfectly. So you may find one corner only has one sprinkler where they really probably should have put in two. This will be a good guide to why you have problems in that area, why that plant has never grown as well. Uh, so set a few out, see how long it takes. In general, I have found that it's anywhere from 30 to 45 minutes for those times of sprinklers to put out an inch of water, but it may take a lot longer if you have certain brands, so you need to measure. And then finally, that gets us to two key issues. One is our soils in our area, in many cases can only absorb about a half inch of water at a time. And I'm suggesting you should put on a full inch of water. So if you're in, let's say, Stonegate region of Davis or Binning Tract north of Davis, where there's higher clay content, the more dense your soil is, the less it's able to absorb all at once. So if it takes 30 minutes for your sprinkler to put out an inch of water, but you've got one of these infiltration rates that's slower, and in 15 minutes, it's puddling and running off. Don't do that. Runoff is a no-no. Your neighbor will take a picture and send it to the city. By the way, they have an online portal for you to do that, to turn in your neighbors. So you can do that if you want to. Might be better just to go wave at the neighbor and go, hey, water's running across the sidewalk. But, uh, you know, if you're that kind of neighbor, fine. Um, be aware that runoff can happen before you put on your full inch of water. So this is where I suggest figuring out how long it's gonna take. Let's say it takes 30 minutes, 40 minutes to put on an inch of water and you get runoff in half that time, break it up into two or three intervals all on the same day, right? And monitor it until you get this just right. Out front at our garden center, we have micro sprinklers and drippers watering the flowers that are out there. We now know that in 22 minutes, it'll start to run out onto the sidewalk. So we never run it for more than 22 minutes. Uh, that's just something we've done by observation because of the soil that's out there, the slight slope that we have, the output of our irrigation system. Yours is gonna differ. So you need to figure that out and no water running off on the driveway or the sidewalk. So that may be necessary to have a couple intervals on the same day. Why on the same day? Because then it gets a chance to go further down and further out, make a wider and deeper wetted zone. And drip systems are completely different they water very slowly. They typically have to run for at least a couple of hours to give a full inch of water. Uh, that's not how they're usually used, but it is if you're watering woody plants, shrubs, trees, flowering perennials of most types, things like that, uh, you may need to run a drip system for a couple of hours. Once again, if I know the brand you have and I know exactly how many are out there or what distribution you have, we can calculate it all and figure it out. And it's not that hard to do. But when I do that, I typically is one and a half to two hours for most people with, with modern drip systems. Also bear in mind that drip systems are exempt from the time of day or day of week rules that are always put out by municipalities when we are in drought watering restrictions. Your sprinklers can only come on certain days of the week, 
certain times of day. Your drip system can run in the middle of the afternoon if necessary. If I'm having you water very deeply for a couple of hours and you have to go through all those other sprinklers during the early day like they want you to do for maximum efficiency, minimum evaporation, do that first, then turn on your drip system, let it run for a couple of hours, and it's okay that it's running during the middle of the day because there's practically no evaporation. In fact, in many cases, they're underground. You know, they're covered. Mine are on the surface, but still they're not evaporating. So will they water slowly? They have to run for a couple of hours. You can run them more often. You can run them any day that you wish to run them. And this is very fortunate because we typically are watering our vegetable gardens with drip systems. So you're talking about these sprinkler systems, um, but doesn't how much water your your water system put out have an effect on that? In other words, you said on the hose, the hose pressure is always the same. So if they do this or they do that, it's always coming from the same hose. Well, are your sprinkler systems coming from the same hose? You have, a, it... you have a supply line that's provided by the city. The city can tell you what your water pressure is. 45 to 60 pounds of pressure is pretty typical. You can go get a pressure gauge and, and test that yourself. But you also should check with your city public works department and ask them what you should plan on. Back when we were installing irrigation systems in Davis, we would almost always measure 40, 45 pounds of pressure. But the city would say you should probably only plan in those days with the wells that they have been and the pressure on the line. They you should only plan on 35 to 40 pounds of pressure and 35 pounds was not uncommon that really makes a big difference if you're designing an irrigation system and you're putting in conventional sprinkler heads to water a lawn and you add up all the gallons per minute available from the heads that you have and then you know how many valves you're going to need i'm getting a little off into the weeds here but the point is that you wherever you're listening you have a city water supply that has a particular water pressure. They can tell you roughly what it is. You can also measure what it is. Then you look at the output of your, your models. And if, by the way, if you're building a house now and putting in landscaping, don't let them throw away those boxes the sprinklers came in. Save that. Save that information. Ask for the technical specs. Get it all written down. Make a folder uh, on your computer or in your desk so that you can go back to it five years later when you come in to talk to me. And I say, oh, what kind of sprinklers do you have? And I, I, I don't know. You need to know what the output is. You need to know even what the output of your drip emitters is because they range from 0.4 gallons per hour to 5 gallons per hour, which is a pretty big range, mostly 0.4 to 2, but that's still a pretty big range. So it's important to know what the output is of the device that's spewing or dripping the water. It's important to know what your input is in terms of the city pressure. One other little factor that's in there is the size of your city water supply line, which you can get that information from them as well. And then you can go find these charts that show you at that pressure and that supply line, here's how many gallons per minute you have available to you. And let's say you're putting in 10 sprinklers for a lawn, you add up the gallons per minute each one puts out, and you've got 10 gallons per minute available to you, and they add up to 14. What's going to happen if you put all of those on one valve? None of them will work. That's what will happen. You won't None of them pressure. will work. You won't have enough pressure for any of them to do what they're supposed to do. Oh. So it's important if you're designing a sprinkler system to add them up and go, okay, I can only fit five on a line. And I run into this problem when I'm helping people troubleshoot their problems. Someone didn't design it right. But I want I need eight or 10 of them to water the whole zone. Then you need two valves. You need two valves to water your lawn. That's why lawns typically have more than one valve, even though you're looking out at your thousand square foot lawn and thinking, I could be watering this all with one valve, couldn't I? No, you can't because you don't have enough water pressure. Okay. 
So this is getting real complicated and really, I mean, I would be hard pressed to do all of that research and calculating and stuff. Are there people who do this professionally that one can hire? Yes, there's a landscape contractors do this all the time and they install these systems and that's what they're standing there looking at the box at Home Depot, figuring out what the gallon output is of the sprinkler head so they know how many to buy and how many valves they need. Hopefully they're doing that. And I have encountered situations where that was not carefully done and none of the heads were functioning properly. What's come up this week with the high ET rate that we were having last week and people watering their vegetable gardens with drip just to tie into our current weather situation, Remember the ET rates running 10, 20% above average, and they were dripping at what seemed like a reasonable rate. And it was working for people whose gardens were in the ground, but not working for people whose gardens were in raised planters. Why? Because they drain out too fast. So you get into that other complication of raised planters, which is that they can't hold water, especially if you just fill them, just built them this year or last year, brought in some soil for them. That's basically like a potting soil or a very fast draining topsoil you can probably not hold an inch of water for more than three days in a raised planter with that kind of soil. So if I say water one inch of water a week, first of all, that's not enough for a vegetable garden. Vegetable gardens are excluded from all this other conversation because they really need almost the full evapotranspiration rate to grow well and do well. Most garden soils in our region, you can put on several days worth of water all at once. I can water really thoroughly right before a heat wave and then I don't have to water anything except the most newly planted plants during the heat wave. And that's what I prefer to do. But in a raised planter, I, can't, I couldn't do that. I could only get maybe three days worth of water on there and have it stay in the root zone because it just drains out due to gravity. So in the case of raised planters, if you're watering every other day and it's extremely hot, maybe either water longer or more likely just add another irrigation there between the, the two. In other words, your, your, your raised planter drains out too fast for you to be able to store water in the soil. There are many things you can do to help with that, like mulching makes a huge difference. Um, and of course, building the soil over time, as we've discussed many times. But the key issue is a fairly new raised planter. Most people find they have to water them daily. They just have to water daily and then they figure out how long each day it's 25, 35 minutes, depending on what kind of soil is in there. As time goes by, as years go by, you can build that soil so it holds water better. But initially, raised planters are going to need more frequent irrigation during a hot spell. And everything that Don just said assumes that you're going to go out and you're getting, going to get some different soil to put in that box. Yeah. And my suggestion is don't make a raised planter at all well, that's make, make lowered yeah. not let me finish that you make a lowered walk walking area and you take the soil from that walking area and you pile it in where your where your box is so you now have the raised planterness and the whole point of that is to get it up where you can use it yeah. um, but you're using your native soil because you're just moving it from one place to another now in the winter time it we might have puddles because that will will have be, puddles. Low, be low level but yeah so what you're gonna this is for your summer garden well, it would be best if you could fill a raised planter with a soil that's fairly similar to your native soil, which always amazes people when I say that. Well, I'm building this because the soil here is so, fill in with your favorite adjective, 
And I always wanted to say, we actually live in one of the premier agricultural regions in the world. But yeah, sure, whatever. If it seems dense to you, fill it in with whatever you can buy. Um, the, the difference in soil type is the big problem. So if you just need to do something to enhance the retention. But more to the point, during hot weather, you'll have to water more frequently with a raised planter. And they will need almost veg vegetable gardens and turf and flower gardens if you're doing those kind of annual flower beds really need watering practically at the existing ET rate. And that's why, you know, people cut back on those things during a drought. I'd rather have you cut your lawn in half and put your water into your vegetable garden because at least you can eat that stuff. Okay. Yep. yep. Okay. Well, let's, let's move on from this. This is the last show in June. Yep. Don't we want to look at the calendar? I mean, wouldn't that be a fun thing to do? We'll do that in July. We'll do that in July. Yep. Huh. Okay. Let's try it. Right. Then we had, a, we had a fun question that came up, and this has come up twice in different places. Once was on uh, social media, and once was recently someone coming in with a, a magazine or a picture on their iPad or something. And I think that's what you have on the screen right now. There you go. What are great garden flowers for a quote cottage garden? unquote, look, that do well in our heat and preferably some drought tolerance for at least some of them. Yeah, so what so the first of all, what's a cottage garden look? Yeah, it's an interesting term. It, uh, it refers to a gardening design style from Britain, I guess would be the origin. Gertrude Jekyll is probably the most famous designer of this kind of thing. These are mixed borders of perennials that flower over a long period of time, all season here in California, you can have flowers in your mixed perennial border, your cottage garden. It, the idea is imagine a garden, imagine a cottage, a stone cottage with moss on the roof and all that kind of thing. And you walk out the door and instead of a lawn, you have a whole bunch of flowers. And I don't mean just chaos flowers, I mean designed intentionally constructed patterns within the flower choices so that it's a pleasure to walk through and you have some things that are spiky and some things that are trailing some things that are full and you'll have a path that might meander and it's it's good for things to trail over the path it's intended for this to be informal and for things to be in bloom all the time a cottage and, garden is a particular look and it's not annuals that's what you're saying that's right so an english garden has lots of annuals in it and you're saying a cottage garden doesn't well english gardens cottage gardens are kind of the same thing gertrude jekyll was a very famous english garden designer um there may be annuals in there you may put some in but the fundamental backbone of this type of a garden is typically easy care perennials including things that are actually shrubs that we grow like perennials. So there's lots of plants that are woody plants that have blooms. Lavenders are a good example that are used as if they were flowering perennials. They're not herbaceous. They're not like, like um, um, some of the salvias. Well, salvias are a good example. They're both woody forms and herbaceous forms. So generally we're talking about herbaceous perennials, but mixed with woody shrubs that happen to be used the same way. And uh, then the question is, how do you translate this from the balmy, rainy, cloudy, mild temperature climate of the UK to the Central Valley of California. Uh, we don't exactly have the same climate here, but there are plenty of things that grow here and, and love our heat and will bloom just fine with these kind of mixed plantings. First key thing I would say is 
don't worry too much about the design. It's helpful to talk to landscape designers on this kind of thing or good people at garden centers or people who know the plants, but just have some fun with it because you can move these plants around. It's not like you put that canna lily in that one spot. It always has to stay there. You can divide them, you can move them and then choose things that are appropriate to our climate. And this is the most important part that are comparable in their water requirements. So we'd urge you to go towards low water plants now, but there may be some higher water plants you want to have in there, then put them in their own zone where it'll have its own separate irrigation line. If you want to see something that is uh, perhaps our equivalent of a cottage garden, I suggest you go over to the university in the Arboretum, and there are lots of different gardens in the Arboretum, and the, but the one I'm thinking of is called the Californios Garden, and it's down there by uh, where the boat dock used to be and where the uh, canoe shed probably still is. I haven't been there in a couple of years, but it's down there, and it has a lot of dry uh, plants, plants that are good for our climate. Our climate is very similar to the Mediterranean climate and very similar to other climates around the world. And so there's a bunch of flowers in there that are little bushes and little, just like you were talking about, Don. So I'd say, go check out the, the Arboretum. And yeah, these are some early, early historical plants. And before you get to that one, you'll be walking through one of the best in the area for that purpose, which is the Ruth Storer Garden, which started out as mostly perennials and low things. And of course, bigger shrubs have grown in over the years as it's been there for many years now. The Central Park Gardens in the downtown Davis, another good example. Typically, you're going to see some, perhaps some natives in there, but more commonly, these are low water plants from the Mediterranean, Australia, South Africa, places with similar climates. So we get a longer bloom season really good examples of things that'll fit in a in a cottage garden look or a perennial border look in california would include i mentioned salvias i mean it's a huge group of plants many of them are very drought tolerant they have the kind of spiky flowers in many cases that are that are a core look in these types of gardens in england it would be delphiniums here we're going to use salvia guaranitica instead or salvia nemorosa these are soft herbaceous salvias that have spikes of bloom over a very long period of the, of the season and some of your backbone plants might be the other salvias the woody ones the greggy eyes and the other ones that bloom in the autumn and even into the winter the mexican sage salvia lucantha is very popular in california because it blooms in late summer, fall, and right on into the winter until the storms finally beat it down. And it's got a beautiful purple flower practically through December. Lavenders, we've talked about lavenders before. They're going to be a core plant in something like this. And remember, they are shrubs. So there's not, a, you can't casually move them around or divide them up like you could with some other perennials. So they'll be something you'll want to choose their positions, give them three to four foot of space each because most of them will take that. There are some smaller types. If you choose your lavenders carefully, you can have bloom from as early as February to as late as the end of summer. And particularly the well-known fragrant ones that are the English lavenders with names like uh, Grosso, Provence, and so forth. But there's also a lot of others. And the Goodwin Creek uh, has become very popular because it's an Arboretum All-Star. It has that fuzzy leaf and it's, it's a great looking plant as well as having these very attractive flowers. And there's a lot of other easy perennials that fit in this kind of thing. And I'm just going to mention about a half dozen that are easy for our area, relatively low water, and can be mixed and matched. These are kinds of things where you can dig them up, you can move them around. You like one of them, dig it up in the fall, split it up, put it in several places. Really, that's the key is to find what works in your situation. So yarrow 
you know, Achillea. Now, some people find it spreads more than they want in their yard. Those are the kinds of plants you want in this kind of a border. There's lots of yarrows, including native ones and also some very showy flowered hybrids. Agapanthus, you know, the most commonly planted plant in California that isn't native here from South Africa. There's a bunch of new varieties that have really vivid purple flowers. They're great plants for California because they're very drought tolerant, long bloom season. Yes, I agree. They're rather overused. But you know what really likes agapanthus? Swallowtails. So I'll throw and, them. And they reseed and they come up everywhere. Well, Lois, people who cut off the seed heads before they ripen, don't well, yeah, time. but you really, <laughs> I, I, you really expect people to go out tromping through the border and the and the back edge and finding the agapanthus and cutting the seed heads off. Yes, yes, we expect that. So these are I, gardens that people fuss over, so they're not your style or my style. I agree with that. <laughs> Moving on to one that's really a good example of one that can really take over. Alstromeria. I mean, we've talked about it many times, Peruvian lily. If you like the look of it and you don't want the 30-foot border that I now have of one of the early varieties of Alstromeria, look for the dwarf types. They're, they're much more workable in most people's landscapes. Uh, Echinaceas, I think, are some of the best for this area, for on the edge of the these other plants to bloom in late summer and into the fall. I particularly urge you to look at the older types of Echinacea rather than the newer hybrids, because the older ones last longer, can multiply and actually be a nice long-term thing in the garden. Varieties like Magnus, this new seed strain called Cheyenne Spirit, which comes in a whole range of yellows and oranges and reds. That one seems to come back for several years. One of my frustrations is that all the newer varieties of Echinaceas and a lot of the new varieties of Rudbeckias, Black-Eyed Susans, and a lot of the varieties of Gaylardia bloom tight, give lots of bloom, fizzle out. So older types may be more appropriate for this kind of more informal garden where you're not going to be going out and sticking things in all the time. Once you've got it kind of planted, the seasonal maintenance on this sort of thing is digging some things up and dividing them, cutting some things back, deciding you didn't like that plant so much, so getting rid of it and putting in a new plant and so forth. This shouldn't be the kind of thing where you have to rip everything out and plant all new stuff every season. This will be an ongoing project. And if you stop, a lot of those things will just keep blooming and spreading. Gazanias, great for us. They're from South Africa, if I recall. They bloom like crazy from fall through winter and into the spring, and some of the new varieties go right on into the summer. Nipophia. Red hot poker. Your grandmother grew it, probably. And there's a bunch of new varieties of that. I'm going to throw in one of my top 10 perennials. It's always on my top 10 list. The midnight variety of penstemon, which is one of the best longest lived penstemons I've ever grown and sold. I have a plant that's 12 years old. Uh, it gets to be about four feet across. So give it room. That's that spiky look you're after. Again, spikes of flowers are kind of the core look in, in parts of these, these types of landscapes. I mentioned Rudbeckia. I would suggest instead of the Black-Eyed Susan, look for the one called Goldsturm. It's a Rudbeckia fulgens, not Rudbeckia herta, but Goldsturm is the name to look for. That's a long-lived Rudbeckia. It's the classic old-fashioned three-inch flowers. They're not five-inch flowers like the new hybrids. They're only three inches, but they're spectacular, and the plant will increase and grow year to year, whereas the others tend to be two to three-year plants at best. I'll mention three more. Perovskia. Russian sage, really popular these days, in part because breeders came out with a couple of varieties that are shorter than the old-fashioned Borovskia. So it's no longer a five-foot floppy thing at the back of the border. You can put it in the middle of the border and get that fuzzy purple look with these new ones. Bunch of names. Little Spire is one that's out there. It's selling like crazy. Nurseries absolutely love them because they actually bloom in the pot, unlike 
the old Perovskias, and they're actually great garden plants for the valley. And scabiosas and verbenas are two that shouldn't be forgotten here in our hot, dry climate. Scabiosas in general are, are tolerant of a wide range of conditions, everything except shade. They're in too much shade, they get mildewed. There's annual forms that you can plant for their spectacular bloom. There's perennial forms that just bloom nonstop. It's one of the longest blooming perennials in your border. Butterflies love them, hummingbirds love them, bees love them. So they're really easy to grow, draw lots of beneficials. And uh, the common name for scabiosis is pincushion flower. And then verbena, verbena, all types. There's native types and non-native types that fit in these gardens. They love heat, they love dry heat. Some of them hug the ground like the tapian series, which are some of the best that just flat growers, practically a mat. Many others are in about the six to 12 inch range. These are hot colors. These are strong colors that take some good design skills to work in with these other plants we've talked about. And in, in addition to those, the ground cover types, there's a very tall spiky verbena, uh, which a lot of people like to grow because it's really attractive to the beneficials. That would be the verbena, and I'm drawing a blank on it because of my age. Something spikes. <laughs> Give me no, five minutes, it, it'll come back to me. Isn't that, isn't that the word? Isn't it like scarlet, scarlet spikes or something? We're gonna, okay. we're, we're just, we'll figure it out later, but there, it's a tall upright grower that's very attractive to butterflies, hummingbirds and bees. And verbenas love heat and they love low humidity. So when all these things that you were talking about, um, some of this, the question I have is like red hot pokers, they always look like they should be in the desert. They're, they look to me like desert plants, you yeah. know? Yeah. And the very, yeah, but then the midnight penstemon, oh, that's soft and lush and mm -hmm. now do they have the same requirements? They just look different or are, is, is the penstemon soft and lush and needs more water? Penstemons are generally surprisingly drought tolerant. There are some native penstemons in particular, but even the garden hybrids have reasonably good drought tolerance. Once a week watering would be fine with them. There's something I should mention. The California style is to mix these things. You take the drier adapted plants and the drier looking plants. Aloes are a great addition to a perennial board. They wouldn't do it in the UK, but they do it here because you get the spikes of bloom in some cases, especially if you're listening in coastal areas, you get the blooms in winter and they are very attractive to hummingbirds. Backing up, now that my, my old 386 computer of a brain has kicked in, <laughs> Verbena bonariensis is the one I was trying to remember. It's a spiky upright grower. The original form grows to five feet and reseeds all over your place. There's a dwarf form that only gets to about two to three feet, blooms for a very long period. So sometimes it takes a little longer to, for the recall. But the, the look that we get in California is different. If you walk around the UC Davis campus, for example, where they've allowed the Arboretum and apparently the Botanical Conservatory to be doing some of the landscape plantings in the medians and in the parking lots, you'll see mixes of these things. You'll see shrubby rock roses, Goodwin Creek lavender, aloes, nipophias, the red hot pokers, all mixed together. As long as they're not overcrowded, as long as each plant has enough room to develop to its full potential, and as long as they're compatible on the watering, there's no rules for this. Just because Gertrude Jekyll did it one way doesn't mean you have to do it that way. She's a good starting point. I do suggest anybody who's interested in perennial flower design, look her up, J-E-K-Y-L-L, -L, Gertrude Jekyll, probably the most famous landscape designer in European history. Um, and she was the master of this kind of thing. But you're just looking at it to say, oh, I see. There's spiky plants with low flat plants around them, like penstemon with nepeta. And back behind that is a shrub that blooms at a particular time of year. 
and there's open spaces between them. It's not all smashed in together like some giant riot of color. If you like giant riots of color, that's fine, but I would suggest you start with the plants on three to five foot spacing until you figure out their growth habits and try to get a reasonable balance of growth shape, spreading mixed with fluffy, mixed with spiky so that you get that texture contrast and it's best I'm going to go ahead and give you a little rule here. If you repeat some color pattern, if you have, if you've done doing this for the first time, use more blues and purples and whites because they'll pull things together. Be careful with oranges and reds and yellows because they're hot and bothersome. So use them in certain areas where you want that impact. Orange is one of the hardest colors to design into the landscape. In, in, in any use, whether it's landscape or interior design, orange is a tough color to work with. So you look with these cooler colors, you pull everything together with that, some repeated pattern makes it look like you really had something in mind. And then you can little spots of hot color if you want to really brighten up an area. And in California, we'll often take bold textured plants like cannas and put them in this. And that will be a totally different look than whatever would happen in one of Gertrude Jekyll's English cottage gardens, but it's California. We're combining the fact that we can grow subtropicals and, uh, and Mediterranean plants and some of these cottage garden perennials and have just the best of all those three worlds. I think that a cottage garden is a wonderful thing to do if you're starting fresh. My problem is I like plants. And so when I go to the Arboretum sale and I, oh, I'll buy, oh, that's a cute little plant, I'll buy that little plant. And then it turns out to be a three foot wide thing. And I only have a, a residential yard and I've already got six redwood trees in it. It's like, <laughs> I don't have a whole lot of place to put this stuff. And so- well, you've, you've identified two problems there. One is that some of us are plant collectors. And so we collect the plant, then we find a place for it. That's fine. That fits in with this. Just try to give it enough room and move things around as needed. Most herbaceous perennials, unlike the woody plants, most of the softer things, Shasta daisies, uh, you can dig them up in the fall and move them as a whole clump or divide them. You know, and I do suggest this, if you find one thing that's really working well, Shasta daisy is a good example. It's white flowered, so it mixes with almost anything else we've talked about. It's got a consistent, predictable bloom season. Uh, they're easy to grow. So dig it up in October, increase it, increase that, use more of it and repeat things. And that really makes the whole thing look more harmonized. The second issue you've mentioned is six redwood trees. Shade is a problem for this kind of look. These are sunny flower borders that we're talking about. A cottage garden is a sunny garden that you see as you walk in, you go past the white picket fence, you go past the low roses that are framing the white picket fence, and you're walking towards the front door. And these are the lovely flowers that are surrounding the front yard as you do that. And it's not going to work that well in the shade. We can talk about easy perennials for a lot of color in the shade, but it's a more challenging topic. You've been listening to the Davis Garden Show with Don Shore. And Lois Richter here at KDRT LP 95.7 in Davis, California.